You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Mark, Patrick, Caitlin, Towner. We have a lot to cover today. And, but it, and, and by the way, Towner already started spinning me at eight o'clock this morning on oh, yeah. how he's going to turn defeat into victory. But <laughs> I look Patrick, forward to hearing that. Towner. Yeah. Yeah. But in a sense, we don't even have to have a podcast today because Patrick wrote the podcast yesterday and I'll read his text. <laughs> Both sides are to blame. He attributes that to me. <laughs> Random quoting of founding fathers. Mark, that's you. I'm prepared. Obscure race-by-race anecdotes that no one follows. Towner. I'm ready. Genuine outrage, Caitlin. (laughs) And a giant shrug and smirk with nothing of value to contribute, Patrick. So I think we're done. We're done. That's the podcast. We're done. should I start with my uh, random quoting of founding fathers? You got to do it no. now. You've been no. up. So yeah. when Howard asks me what happened Tuesday night, I get to say, Patrick, it was a good night for James Madison. There you go. Yes. The Constitution he wrote 250 years ago withstood a stress test. And it was a good night for democracy, small d, Towner and Caitlin. That manifested itself in a good night for capital D Democrats, but only because of the framing of the election where Democrats took the democracy high ground and a bad night for Republicans because of bad candidates. Candidates matter. So, Mark, tell us what you thought about the election results on Tuesday night. So I thought that we wake up on Friday morning in the same divided country we went to sleep in on Tuesday night. Look, look where we are. 50-50 Senate. It'll be 50-50 or two seats one way or the other. We go from plus four or five D to plus four or five R in the House. And in state after state, voters showed up and split the ticket, pick the candidate they like. You have uh, Herschel Walker running far behind Brian Kemp. You had Bolduc running far behind Sununu. You had Vance running far behind DeWine. You had Fetterman running far behind Shapiro. So I, I say kudos to the American electorate for Tuesday night. Well, Mark, now I don't know if you listened to the podcast last week, but I was you away. I, you and I were on our way back from Tel Aviv, and we turned the mic over to our three colleagues here. And there was there was a we'll lot never of doom. Do that again. <laughs> a lot of doom and gloom from Patrick. A lot of doom and gloom from all of you, or actually incorrect predictions from all of you. Mark, if we'd been on, I think you and I clearly would have said that the Democrats were going to overperform. And that just shows us we can't turn the podcast over. We can't do that. And I submit as Exhibit A my election pool that I submitted to Towner, the winning pool showing Democratic overperformance across the board. 
I have proof that you were no. wrong, Patrick. Th- th- this is you know, your. Joe Hill asked me at dinner last night, Patrick, to give you a a, a special shout down for yes. your pessimism about the party. I know Kevin Kerr did the same thing on a call yesterday, <laughs> and I I I forgot how much some of our listeners and colleagues like really genuinely. They are out there a lot. Of, they care. They care in a way that, you know, the re, the results, I think, are, are they mean something to people. Um, and we can do the analysis all day and kind of. But but for those who who genuinely wanted to see a certain result and got to see that, I feel nothing but happiness and joy for them, because that's a great, a great thing. Well, but look, this is yet another election where the conventional view was wrong. Mm hmm. Well, let's start and, with with how the polling industry stays in business is a mystery. Yeah, I mean it's an indicator, but the 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 conventional wisdom, the popular view going into the election from every from everybody was that this was going to be a wave because partially based on the polls, but also also partially based on history mm-hmm. i mean when do you remember a new president's party doing well in the first midterm I, you know it's 1982 towner right 1934 is the <laughs> yeah towner's going to give us a lecture on 1934 <laughs> um, FDR's first term but it 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 hasn't it this defied historical patterns and so it wasn't just the polls, it was the historical patterns. And Towner, I, I think it I think it's pretty extraordinary what went down and people's pessimism. Yeah. Maybe the pessimism got people out to the polls. It it's possible. It's it is absolutely extraordinary what went down. I am still trying to make sense of it, to be perfectly honest. I'm I'm a bit but we still don't know where we still we no. still don't know where it all lands for one no, thing. We're not. And I think, you know, my guess at this point would be, you know, just with the races that are left outstanding, the Republicans are going to be between 220 and 223 seats in the House. Um, I think 223 is by far the high water point if they can get there. Um, but Lord only knows what happens in California where there's, you know, seems like half of the races in California are still outstanding at this point, unfortunately. So that's how California does their thing. The end of the day, though, the fascinating thing to me is where we were on October 1st is the same as where the election ended up almost exactly where Democrats may, may pick up a seat, even in the Senate Uh, Republicans were going to win the house, but you know, we were in the 15 to 20 seat. They're going to end up flipping about 16, 17 seats probably. And the, the last three weeks of the campaign, this red wave narrative really drove the narrative uh, the, into a place where now it's a loss for Republicans, where, you know, if if this had been October 1st, we would have said, yeah, that's about right. That's about what we thought it was going to be. The thing that drove that narrative, though, is the total votes. And the crazy thing right now is that Republicans in the House have cast about 51 million votes and Democrats have cast about 46 million. We haven't seen those numbers since the red wave of 2014. Remember, Democrats like to talk about how they have more total votes. They win the popular election every time, but they're not going to in this election. And yet they're still going to have a good night. And it is there is no sense to be made that I can find right now of that. If that vote total happens in any other midterm, 
it's a wave election for Republicans. Ticket splitting. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's Republicans voting for Democrats over bad Republican candidates. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how you make sense of those numbers. Yeah, but anytime we've seen those numbers before, it's been a, a red yeah. wave. Caitlin, what's your what's your feeling as we sit here? And we should say, I know generally we don't like to say what day of the week it is, but it's Friday, and I think it's important contextually because we don't yet really know where all of it lands. Um, but obviously the, the D's way overperformed uh, relative to expectations. Well, here's how I'm feeling this morning, Howard. Long-term, this is a win for the GOP. And let me tell you why. Finally, finally, we are seeing people wake up and say, we are done with Donald Trump interfering in our primaries interfering with our candidates. He does not represent the policies of the party. We're finally seeing a shift. That is good. The House seats that Republicans lost, Peter Myers in Michigan, for example, we lost that seat because Trump interfered with a crazy nut job candidate and primaried Peter Meyer, a wonderful moderate Republican. And they guess what? Every time Trump interfered in one of those races, it became a dumb flip for the most part. That's the trend. I mean, so Pete I arguably cost, he arguably cost Pennsylvania. He did. The Senate there's seat in Pennsylvania. This is a very personal a- matter for Caitlin because Trump cost her dinner. Uh, well, yes. That's as I, I pointed smiling. out previously, Mark, you know you're charging that to Michael, so... Absolutely. He's going to pick up the tab, but we'll see. No, no, no. Howard, you sent around that text, though, yesterday, the whoever the guy is who works for Trump kind of teasing his presidential announcement and hearing what Caitlin is saying, like, I agree that Trump costs the Republicans a ton of seats, but it is comical to me that the people who are waking up outraged think that they have any say over what happens next. Like the Republican Washington crew hasn't wanted Trump since the day he came down the escalator. And every single time, he puts his cards on the table and says, you know what I have? I have the voters in my part, in our party. He he has the power. But and he so, did on Tuesday night, Patrick. Not in the general election, but he picked all these people. And guess who picks the nominee of your presidential party? The Republican primary voters. And yeah. they don't care yeah. what Chris Christie says on ABC about how, like, they don't, they just don't care. And by so, the way, and by the way, you know, the time to care is when hoodlums are storming the Capitol on January 6th. You know, Liz Cheney cared. She cared enough to give up her leadership post. Yeah. She cared enough to take on Donald Trump. She cared enough to campaign for Democrats, a, a Republican congressional leader. That's Democrats caring. Who all, all won, Democrats who won. That's, right. That's all. That's all great. I, I, Let's look forward. I think Caitlin and I are saying we're looking forward. You know who Donald Trump lost on Tuesday? My mom. If she if he loses my mom, that's a problem for Donald Trump. I mean, my mom called me yesterday and says, you know what? That's it. I'm done. And she's been about as big of a Donald Trump supporter as you could find out there, quite frankly. I mean, she wasn't doing January 6th by any stretch of the imagination, but like she, you know, but but Sally French was uh, had no problems whatsoever backing up Donald Trump on any topic over the last six years. And so, you know, those are the kind Pete King in New York, 
you know, former member of Congress who's been a very strong Donald Trump supporter. These are the kind of things where, you know, Caitlin and I are saying, hey, we're invested in the health of our party. We're not fleeing our party. We're Caitlin and I aren't going to MSNBC to try to be commentators like Carlos Corbello and David Jolly. We're not going to CNN like Jim Schultz and trying to be a commentator and like turning our back on our party. I I don't think... We're staying. Counter, I, I don't think it's it. appropriate to mention former members of Congress and Jim Schultz <laughs> in the go. same sentence, but <laughs> but uh, okay. We're trying to work within our party, and actually, Tuesday was an excellent was an excellent Honor. example. And we had to take some medicine, certainly, and that was Tuesday. We deserved yeah. it. We deserve the Republican Party yeah. deserved what they got on Tuesday night. I, I hope you're right. Two days a day, two days, three days after January 6th, I heard the same thing from Republican leadership, from McConnell and McCarthy, and we know where we are. But but let me move on, if I may, for one minute from Trump and, and ask you another question. The other thing that happened Tuesday night, among many factors, was the Dobbs decision and the abortion vote. And it it just seems to me, looking at your party from the other side of the aisle, that Republicans are going to have to deal with the fact that a majority of the country disagrees with Republican policy on abortion. Yes. And I just wonder what you two think about that. Well, can I just interject, Mark, that I think it's the same thing. I think that is about democracy, too. <laughs> Because the Supreme Court is anti-democratic, which doesn't mean that it's not an institution that should be revered, but it's anti-democratic and it's out of step with the majority of popular opinion in this country, which is why people took the vote the way that they did. Yeah, that's a part I found interesting just looking at kind of what happened to Mark's point on on Dobbs is like if you look at like the suburbs where I live, DuPage County outside Chicago there weren't any real Trumpers on the ballot locally. Like there were some kind of Republicans trying to reclaim a county board majority. We didn't, it wasn't real Trumpy, but Democrats ran the table. So this wasn't like the statewide races where you've got Oz and, you know, whoever else, like these weren't like Trump coming in here and picking his people and voters rejecting that. They were just rejecting Republicans, period. And this is a historically Republican district that has trended Democrat. That's the part I didn't expect and that's really what I think like I got the most wrong is I really felt like the suburbs were going to come back with Trump not being on the ballot. But we're not in a post-Trump world. And with Dobbs and everything else, I mean, the suburbs really held for the Democrats in a way, given the economic conditions. I just did not yeah. think it would. Well, what we got wrong and eventually I'll let Towner and Caitlin answer Mark's question. But what we got wrong was the relative um, impact of the economy the relative impact of the economy. I think in in all of our view, this was a conventional election where the economy was going to dominate the ballot. And these issues, which we could all see, were out there. I mean, every ad was about Dobbs and, and abortion. And the talking points from the president and the former president were in the closing days of the campaign were all about democracy. Um, and, but we all thought that the economy would prevail and because the economy is in a very tenuous place and we were wrong. 
And that's, that's interesting. So I think it's really hard to use such a broad brush to describe what happened on Tuesday night, because what we haven't talked about yet is the state of Florida, which governor Ron DeSantis won Miami-Dade County by huge margins for the first time since Jeb Bush won Miami-Dade County and a, a traditionally very blue, very liberal part of the state. And he won by larger margins than any GOP governor ever has. He won Palm Beach County. Um, the Florida delegation knocked off several Democratic House seats. We've got the Florida Democrats saying, "This is we're giving up. We're, 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 we're done with this state. We can't even kind of play here. You've got New York, where the reason that Republicans might have that very slim sliver wedge of a majority in the House is because we flipped so many New York seats. I think it's hard. I totally hear you guys and agree that abortion played a much in the job. The Dobbs decision played a much larger role than I think a lot of it that I personally anticipated. But I think it's just really hard because a lot of the district. I think candidate quality at the end of the night was really the biggest deciding factor because it's it's not a narrative that goes neatly throughout all of these races and all these states. Governor Brian Kemp, Mark, frankly, who won by huge margins in Georgia, is pretty pro-life. So it's just hard to, you know, use these narratives in all of these races. And then again, Florida and New York are two outliers here where Republicans had a really good fight. Well, and to Caitlin's point, if you look at Kemp, you look at others, democracy and candidates ruled the day on Tuesday. You know, Mastriano didn't make some huge surge and he didn't make some Josh Shapiro didn't win because of abortion. He won because of democracy. When you look at when you look, you know, Maggie Hassan didn't win because of abortion. She won because of democracy against Boulder. I agree. You know, if you look at the big races that really flipped the map, it wasn't necessarily abortion. I agree completely with Patrick. Republicans did not make the inroads with suburbs that I had very largely said that I thought they would. We also uh, had terrible candidates in those races. Yeah. And I mean, those two things dovetail with each other. Republicans are not changing their position. Not the House races, Caitlin. I thought some candidates were fine. (laughs) It's not one size fits all. Counter and Caitlin are clearly right. It's not one size fits all. I do think sitting where I am in the suburbs of Philadelphia, it was really abortion and Trump, but abortion very definitely in the mix that enabled the Democrats to flip the state house, the state uh, legislature. And there weren't terrible candidates. Trump didn't impose his candidates on the state rep races in Montgomery County. So it where it was top of the ticket, Mark. I mean, you know, look, the House races there, like going into it, I think you and Patrick would have agreed that Wilde probably will lose on Election Day, you know, a week out. We all look at that race and say, I don't know how Susan Wilde hangs on. I thought Spanberger was going to lose. I thought Slotkin was going to lose. I thought like great members, my favorite members. Democratic caucus, but I thought all of them were going to lose. Yeah. And we say and we say in Philly, I don't know if Matt Cartwright can hang on. And gosh, I think Madeline Madeline Dean is going to hang on. But but, you know, it's going to be closer than than we would expect. And it wasn't because of abortion. It was because of Mastriano. Well, I think one thing on the abortion and actually, Howard, not the play moderator, because that's your job. But I want to flip to you on just something I've been thinking about with the economy, because you brought up just sort of we've been debating that economy versus abortion what won out. I mean, something I find interesting is like thinking back to 2010, 
where where the economy was. I mean, unemployment and inflation are super different, right? Like when you don't have adequate household income because someone in your house is unemployed, that's different than paying more for goods and services you're used to paying a certain amount for. So Absolutely. like that it's just different. And so I think we were talking about inflation like it's unemployment. Unemployment's at what 3.7 percent. Yeah, we're we're, in, we're in what economists low. consider to be full employment. Yeah. So I, I I think like no one likes going to the grocery store and paying a bunch more. But in these suburbs we're talking about, I'm sorry, but people can afford it. They just can. And so abortion I think proved to be more of a potent political issue because just talking, I mean I feel like the thing I got the most wrong is I just should have asked my wife and I did, but I just didn't believe it was going to be as big an issue as it was. She told me for months, she's like, you have no idea how pissed off people are and and they're going to vote. And she was right. But Howard, do you think well, the difference in the economic conditions, like, do you think that's a factor, just how people view inflation versus unemployment and how that? Yeah. I mean, yes, absolutely. We had a we have had a muddled economic picture. I think there's a lot of doom and gloom, but you're, you're right to point out that I think it's an expectation of doom and gloom as opposed to doom and gloom today. I mean, look, the high gas prices, things costing more people feel that they're worried about it. And there's no doubt going to be a recession sometime yeah. in in well i shouldn't say no doubt but i think there's a very high probability and a lot of doom and gloom expectation of a recession but we are not in a recession today and people have jobs and they have income and i think you know i think that's absolutely right and i think we've said all along it's a muddled economic picture you know i think the other thing i mean we've talked about it a lot on this podcast was this a referendum on joe biden and I said many times that I thought he was doing a better job than people were giving him credit for. You know, he his approval ratings were low, but he accomplished he he has actually accomplished a lot in his first two years. And I I think it's in some ways kind of a continuation of a of the Joe in the basement strategy. Like he wasn't really out there on the campaign trail. Um, and yeah, I think well, at the end of the day, Kate, your Caitlin was right, Patrick. Yeah. And well, then by the way, know. you should listen to her on everything. I, Patrick. On, on this and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, but I think well, absolutely. This is like One, the candidate quality thing. I mean, we've gotten so used to like Senate candidates performing and essentially whatever the approval rating of the president, you know, of their party is, and that didn't happen. And this is where it's just like some of these people that Trump handpicked to run made it like almost impossible. Yeah. Well, look at Pennsylvania. In- look at Pennsylvania, Mark. Right. Was that different if it was Dave McCormick versus John Fetterman as opposed to Dr. Oz versus John Fetterman? Yeah, I think it would have been closer. I think Fetterman maybe in what happened on Tuesday night still would have won. We'd still be counting votes if it were McCormick, also a different gubernatorial candidate. And Fetterman probably losing. In in a world where Jake Corman is running against Josh Shapiro and Dave McCormick is running against John Fetterman, Fetterman probably loses. Mark, does another Democratic, under the exact same conditions we had Tuesday, is Fetterman the only one who wins or does another Democrat win just like we saw? No, another Democrat 
wins. Connor Lamb, who got his clock completely clean. I can hear Joe Hill losing it, losing his mind right now at this right. conversation. He right. is he is not a fan. I I love this. Yeah, but but the other thing in the Pennsylvania suburbs that didn't stick, the other issue that didn't stick, counter is crime. Our friend Susan Wild. Susan Wild was crucified, absolutely nailed to the cross in commercial after commercial after commercial on crime. She was she supported murderers and rapists and the worst imaginable. And and that issue didn't stick. I thought it might have more more staying power, but but it it didn't stick in the suburbs with everything else going on. Do you guys notice how Mark's biblical references have increased coming off of our Israel trip? I think I'm feeling very spiritual. He's 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 <laughs> beyond quoting the founding fathers. Yeah. He's now yeah, quoting mix in the founding in. fathers in Old Testament. There you go. Mark, Mark's become a preacher and Towner has a black hooded sweatshirt on. Everything is flipped upside down after Tuesday. But Howard, speaking of Joe Biden, Caitlin, yes. Towner, Patrick, Howard, elections have consequences. And he said it at his press conference, which he sort of had to. But I believe that he woke up Wednesday morning actually intending to run for president in 2024 and he might not have if the night had gone as predicted so that that is that is a to be determined but he he had a good night he had a great night he had a great night and i'm really looking forward to the republican majority in the house of representatives and well, that's the thing. I, well, I, I was going to say on that point, I mean, listen, you always want to win. You always want to, if, if there would have been a great story to tell if Democrats had held the House and the Senate, but it would have been a, a, another long two years where the kind of easy accomplishments have already been taken off the table. Now you have a super razor thin potential Republican majority, and Biden's going to have a very easy foil as well. Listen, they can subpoena they can Guys, we're still counting votes in the Senate races. I just want to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we are. Say, no like, it is about not it. a foregone conclusion wait, that Dems held the Senate. Right. I've it's seen not. enough scenarios. Obviously, it's not. It's not. to throw it back, it's not a foregone conclusion Republicans win the House. Either. You're absolutely but, yeah. right. You're absolutely so right. We're California knows how to get those trickle votes. Listen, <laughs> oversight, assuming we're correct that the Republicans do end up with the House. Oversight with a one-seat majority is just as significant as oversight with a 40-seat majority. Oversight is oversight is oversight. This has nothing to do with the legislative agenda. It has everything to do with the oversight agenda. And the Senate is totally in play. We don't know the outcome in Nevada. I think we expect Mark Kelly to win in Arizona, but we don't know the outcome in Nevada. And if Cortez Masto loses, then it's all about the Georgia runoff. And frankly, it's enormously, I mean, it's a Republican controlled Senate by a seat is a world of difference. Totally. Joe Biden. I agree with you on the one seat. Oversight is oversight, but if it is, if it appears to be super random and mean spirited and weird over the next two years, like I anticipate it's going to be, I'm just saying it's not the worst thing in the world for President Biden to have a very clear foil 
in McCarthy and the new very small Republican majority well, in the House. Yeah. But Caitlin, is there any Senate. chance or let me Tanner, let me ask you this as the former rules guy. Is there any chance that Republicans get the message and let's assume they end up with the House? Is there any chance that they get the memo and actually conduct their oversight over the next couple of years in a way that isn't wacky and appears more consistent with conventional norms, institutional norms, without the burn it down mentality with which they've been governing? Absolutely not. Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden. Absolutely not. You know, I pick your I mean, we're going to spend months on Afghanistan withdrawal, which I think the Americans are pretty proud. As we should. Yeah, we should have at the time. We should have at the time. And that's what this election was about, is to say we should have at the time. Um, you know, we should have at the time, you know, we're going to spend months on Hunter Biden. We're going to spend months on border wall. We're going to spend months on You know, it's basically the House is going to run a two year campaign leading into 2024 against Biden. And the question is whether or not the question I think you asked, Howard, is whether or not, you know, Jim Jordan is the chairman of the Oversight and Reform Committee is going to be able to uh, to keep it together enough uh, that uh, he's going to make a coherent argument to the American people. I think the answer is very roundly no. And uh, I, I don't think there's a chance of it. You know, the Senate's critical from the standpoint of Biden would have two years to do judges the way Trump had two years to do judges. And if he doesn't have the judges, you know, we are truly in a full gridlock situation if if the Republicans are able to squeak out two of these last three seats. Caitlin, what's your view on that question? Can the Republicans, can they can they govern the way Republicans used to govern? Or is it, are we dealing, you know, you, you talked earlier about how this is a victory because it moves away from Trump. Well, part of moving away from Trump is kind of getting back to getting away from that burn it down mentality. Can they do that? I think it's going to be harder with the slim margins. Um, I think we're seeing this already with conversation about whether or not uh, Leader McCarthy is going to be challenged with the vote for Speaker, given the majority is going to be so small. I think the House Freedom Caucus is going to play a much larger role once again within the caucus. But I always like to, to pivot to the Senate and you know, the House and the Senate are two very, very different bodies. And look, I do think that there are certainly some bipartisan, regular order policy and legislating that can be done out of the upper chamber, whether it's with the split, you know, Dem Senate, yeah. Republican House, or especially if Republicans pick up both chambers. I mean, look at the debt limit, though, just to like just a real easy one to just look at. Let's say Republicans take back the House by a few seats and Democrats hold the Senate. How are we going to how's that debate going to play out? How's McCarthy going to get enough votes on the Republican side? He's going to have to get virtually everyone. He's going to go to the Democrats. Yeah, he's going to have to. But if but if he but if he's cut, if he starts cutting deals with the Democrats where he doesn't have enough support within his own caucus, like he stay speaker, they're going to John Boehner him. Yeah, that's what I I mean. He's not going to change that rule back. So they can't John Boehner him. That rule's not in play anymore. But and that's why that rule isn't coming back into play. Probably the best thing that could happen to the House right now is that the House just doesn't exist for two years. Like they they can't elect Speaker McCarthy. They can't form a House. 
and the House is just removed from the playing field for two years. Like that's the greatest outcome for Republicans right and, now. And the that's worst outcome for Towner French. But is that a real thing? Hell? And that's I'm, a real I'm, thing. Patrick, I got to invoke the founding fathers again. I'm, I'm not it. sure that's what was intended. Well, you know, it, hey, we've had we've had Congresses in the past in this country where it's gone months and months without a speaker and the House can't form. The clerk of the House acts as the de facto speaker and you keep trying to vote because uh, you need uh, you need a simple majority of those of the entire body. And so, you know, McCarthy next week. Uh, on Tuesday, Wednesday is going, they're going to do the candidate forum on Tuesday. They're going to do the vote on Wednesday in conference. And he just needs a majority of the Republican conference to be the, the speaker candidate uh, formally uh, for the Republicans. But when, if we're seating a four, a full 435 member house, and that assumes that everybody makes the swearing in because in past years, you know, we've had a few people lagging, but if we're seating a full house, he needs 218 votes to be the Speaker of the House. And there's not a Democrat that's going to vote for him. And who knows who the Democrats are going to vote for. Pelosi may not even be around by the time that vote happens on January 3rd. But that being said, he still needs 218. And if we can't get there, they keep voting until somebody gets 218. So, so Kate, Mark, can I just interrupt to say how much I love listening to Professor French talk about the United States House of Representatives? Me too. Very democratic. But Caitlin, you said earlier, you spun this as positive. If what Towner just posited turns out to be the case, where's the positivity? How's the positivity (laughs) manifesting itself? If we're still going to let these wacko people with the burn it down mentality rule the day, where's the the lesson being learned? Caitlin, let me interject for one second. They're not all wacko, burn it down, um, you know, Republican House members. There are some some good ones in there. Of course, I know that. But we're talking about the burn it down House members controlling the House. If you had let us have a 30 seat majority, this wouldn't be a problem. This could this could this could not be happening to a nicer group of guys. (laughs) I mean, I just I feel so bad for them. Well, I got to say, it takes we're going to get a farm bill. We're gonna get our NDA. We're gonna no. we're gonna get our regular. Yes, we we fine. are. We are. But I'm actually interested in your answer to my question, which is what like how does this manifest itself positively? Because from my point of view, and yes, it's nice to be the guy in the middle who gets to take shots at everybody, Patrick. But from my point of view, it's there's no difference between what. Spurs the Jim Jordans and Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world and Donald Trump. It's anti-democratic, burn it down, tear down institutions. It's that mentality. And it's not just about who's at the top of the ticket in 2024. It's about how we govern. So where are the lessons being learned and how does it manifest itself positively? Yeah, Howard, I think I think, you know, to answer that question seriously, the the bottom line is there are going to be hoops that have to be jumped through. Uh, McCarthy certainly can't put a debt ceiling raise on the floor and just say, hey, you know, as many Republicans as we can get and the rest of the Democrats would be great. You know, he'll lose all support. So what do we right. do? We do things like 
2012 super committee on budget. You know, we do things like it's we're going back into that mode because that's where yeah. we were. We've been there before. But you and, had that's different. You that, that what happened in 2011, you President Obama was that the economy was still tenuous. He was terrified of what a potential default would do. <laughs> this was like Biden is not I think particularly after this election I would be stunned if the Democrats cut yeah. some kind of deal around raising yeah. the debt. Their, their approach is going to be let go ahead, drive go ahead. it right into a ditch. Go for it. Shut yeah. it down. Yep. Go go for it, guys. That's what that's what the Democrats are going to do. We're here. We're ready to vote. You want to burn it down? Go burn it down. How'd that work out for you in 2022? You're going Clinton. You're going Clinton style. Yeah, I think. I think it's the right play. And by the way, that's consistent with the way people voted on Tuesday. Is it not? I don't know. I think Tuesday was all about abortion is what I heard. (laughs) But isn't, but, but isn't that also, it's, that is about, it's Roe v. Wade. People don't want to go backwards. They don't want to go backwards. It was like Roe v. Wade was an institution that was torn down. I think that's the way people are looking at it. Yeah. And the ticket splitting, I mean, you do have to credit. I think it's easy to kind of just hate on. It's very Washington to just sort of like hate on the voters. But in an era of what what feels like just increasing partisanship and party affiliation every year, the fact that voters did split their tickets in pretty big numbers. I mean, that we haven't really seen in probably, probably 10 years. I mean, thinking back to like 2012, you know. Well, we, we lost our friend, Patrick. Yeah. I mean, Patrick, technical difficulties. Towner, go ahead. Howard, I was just going to say that, you know, I, I don't necessarily like the, the reference to backward. Backward depends on what your, what your stance is on an issue as to whether or not you've progressed backwards or you've advanced forwards. There's a lot of people in this country, I mean, 40% at least, who say that we didn't move backwards with the Dobbs decision. I may not be one of those people, actually, but there's a lot of people in this country who think we move forward with the Dobbs decision. And so that's that's sort of where we are right now is what direction are you what direction and viewpoint are you viewing this through? And there's a lot of folks in this country, quite frankly, that just gave Republicans a majority in the House who view that as a step forward, not a step backward. Well, yeah, and that's... then even back to the states too, which I'd like to say, like, look at what happened in Kansas, Howard and Mark yeah. were absolutely right. In the state of Kansas, abortion played a major role. In these Kentucky, where they put a um, language on a ban, that it played a role. I'm just, I disagree that it played a role everywhere. I certainly think it played a role in some of these races. And I think, but, but it's, but we gave it, the states are now making these decisions. So if, if I'm a Virginia voter and I am very pro-choice and that's my, you know, my big issue, but I feel fine about the way our Virginia laws are set with a 20 or 22 week, you know, ban and I'm comfortable with that, then maybe that's not, you know, the issue that I'm. That's just, fair. That's fair. And I, I think, think you're state by state and race by race. And Tanner, I think your pushback on me is fair. It's It's in the eye of the beholder. Yes, it's backwards for me, but I guess. We're used to operating a certain way and it's the change and it's, 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 
changing what people are used to. And people don't, I don't think people like that. And I think it's the same. I think it, it's all kind of commingled. People yeah. don't want, I think people in this country fundamentally don't want government telling them what to do. And, Whether and it's the Supreme Court or it's people in Congress, they don't want people telling them what to do. And they don't like the direction that the country is headed. And and I don't think they like people telling them what to do. I don't think and they don't like change. It's it's amazing. We have had an electorate that has voted for change almost every single election cycle, like actively voted for change. And change yet, in the people governing. Yeah, it necessarily... does. They don't like change in policy. They they don't right. like change in actual any. Well, they don't like people government doing anything. You know, the markets don't like government. So this is this is the part in the program where Mark tells us that Tuesday night, although it will result in a Democratic majority and a Republican majority in the House and may result in a Republican majority in the Senate. Mark is going to tell us why this is a referendum for Democrats and why left-leaning policy should rule the land. I think you meant Patrick, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I was going to say, we haven't (laughs) talked at all about how well Democratic governors did. Everywhere. Democratic statewide office holders everywhere. I think Sisolak in Nevada is the only like real glaring example of a Republican pickup. Democrats ran the table in statewide elections across the country. Governor of Kansas, Democrat was reelected that Kansas. I mean, it's unbelievable. State legislatures flipped like crazy that no one even saw coming. Minnesota has a full Democratic legislature now. Michigan, first time in 40 years, Democratic governor and Democratic uh, state house and Senate. Okay. I mean, it was a big Democratic night. It's it's we're this is the Beltway briefing, so we're focusing on on no, the House races, but we like, should focus broadly. Yeah, Democrats so, ran the table. So your view is that this is a referendum. This is an endorsement by the electorate that they want left leaning policy making coming out of government. No, it's what we've been talking about the whole pe- podcast. They don't want crazy right leaning weird stuff like like saying that you can't. Make healthcare decisions for your own family with your doctor and saying that, you know, like all these statewide elections, I do think the democracy stuff played in. You had candidates openly running saying like, well, we need to run for secretary of state because then we'll be in control of the elections. I mean, people, I I don't think they like that at all. Howard, I I shouldn't have punted a minute ago because I can't actually answer your question. It would be a mistake which we Democrats have a lot of practice making, but it would be a mistake for the Democrats who swept in on Tuesday night to think that this was a mandate for progressive policies because the candidates who won didn't run on progressive policies. They ran on democracy, they ran on abortion, they ran on full employment. It's the point about the economy being mixed. But this was not a, a referendum on a progressive agenda. And I hope we don't make the mistake of misinterpreting it. I'm not particularly worried about it, Mark. I mean, look at we it was it was holding <clears throat> seats, and this goes this goes federal and state. It the win for Democrats was members who were incumbents and endangered who have been through really tough cycles held on in a cycle that no one thought they could. These are like the Spanbergers and Slotkins in Congress. Well, 
the Gretchen that's, that's, Whitmers and the, these were, uh, and some of our Democratic governors were reelected. They're pretty clear eyed, I think, about how tough yeah. it is to push the, the country on progressive policy. But I think they feel emboldened that the, the broader arguments on democracy and abortion, and other things they made were would they resonate with the public and it got them but, reelected. But that's not progressive policies, Patrick. No. What you're saying aren't progressive no. policies. Correct. That's, yeah, yeah. I'm not exactly. But I'm but, no, but what but, I am saying is I don't what I'm saying is I don't think they're going to misinterpret I think that's why right. they were reelected. But it wasn't just holding on. You don't flip state legislatures by just holding on. Right. That's but, true. But it was it was an election about elections in a lot of ways. Yeah, totally. In a lot of ways, it was an election about elections. And the party, for once, we got the message right, Patrick. The party that framed itself as pro-democracy managed managed to hold on in a lot of places and win in a couple more and get its clock cleaned in Florida, as Caitlin pointed out, in Texas. Yeah. By the way, in the Ohio. fantasy of Texas being a swing state is gone. In Ohio, Ohio is is deep red for for a while now. So it it, it wasn't one size fits all. It wasn't uh, a, a Democratic wave. What it wasn't was a Republican wave. And this goes back to Towner saying, if the election had been held on October 2nd, it still would have been historically stunning to see Democratic performance, but it wouldn't have been that surprising because that's where everybody was looking then. Right. Really? I guess it doesn't feel that way to me. I, I, I don't feel like there's been some sea change between October 2nd and November 8th. I'm trying to cheer Towner up. He looks so dejected. Go, go back and look at 538. I mean, like 538 had, I think, a 16-seat Republican pickup on October 1st, and they had Democrats plus two potentially in the Senate. This I feels like it guys. happens every election, though, right? Like, I felt like in 2020, and this was maybe where I was a little more right than how wrong I was this time, but you felt like Demo I was, uh, people, all of our colleagues, everyone was like, Biden's going to get 400 electoral votes and we're going to run the table. And then that like completely did not happen. I mean, we won, but it was a much, it feels like in that last month, wherever the narrative starts to go a little bit, everyone, it, you, then you, then it's like 25. Well, maybe it'll be 30. Well, maybe it'll be 35. And then before you know it, you don't even know where you started. Caitlin. We talked a little bit last week about this Wall Street Journal poll that was that came out last week that said white white women in suburban areas who make up 20% of the electorate favor a Republican in Congress. My the point that I'm trying to make is that you can absolutely say that and you can also answer a pollster and say that the economy and inflation is your number one issue, but be in a district like Virginia 7, Bamberger's district, and not want and not support a candidate who is against abortion, including in cases of rape and incest, and who is an election denier, and who is not the right candidate for that. So I don't think, like to your point about a mandate for progressive politics or Democrats winning the night, I think it is so specific to some of these problematic candidates. We saw the election deniers go down. I think that's great. But that doesn't mean that Americans still aren't concerned about these big issues that the polls showed were their number one issues. They just didn't want to hold their nose and vote for a crazy and instead went with their more moderate House member. And that is what I think happened on Tuesday. I don't disagree with that. I, I also think the euphoria of 
Democrats overperforming expectations and history on Tuesday night is going to slowly wear off as we settle into the fact that there's a Republican majority in the House. And if we settle into the fact that there's a Republican majority in the Senate, that's going to become ancient history. And we're going to be living in a different world than we were living in six months ago. And it's just going to be very different. And people are going to forget even that that happened, except that, look, hopefully, Caitlin, the Republican Party, for the sake of the country, forget about policy, but hopefully the Republican Party wakes up and doesn't put forward a lying, wacko, election-denying presidential nominee in Donald Trump and, and candidates that want to deny the truth congressionally as well. It's, it's, it's Howard, it's one thing on that, frankly, too, dangerous. to make another, another point on the governor's races, I, you know, if you, if you vote those people in the Congress, it's like one thing. But even if, the, even if Republicans end up taking back both houses, the fact that Democrats in these like really important electoral states for 2024 were able to hold on and win governor's races, secretary of state's races, that you don't have a bunch of election deniers controlling potentially the results of the 2024 election. That to me was like the biggest win. I mean, you were looking at some of these people running for secretary of state and governor, and I was starting to wonder, like, how, was, how are we going to have a fair presidential election Given what some of these people have said, that proved to to not be the case. I mean, Mark, we talked about a lot. That was like, for me, the best result. We're back to the blue wall. Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin in Doug Mastriano's hands would be a scary 2024. Well, we're still waiting for Arizona. Yeah, Um, that's a a big one. Right. Uh, And that's, I mean, to me, she's scary as can be probably the scariest person on the ballot this year he's gonna win by the way yeah she's gonna win she reminds me of like a character from that i don't know if you guys watch scandal i said to caitlin this morning she reminds me of like she's so smooth like a tv show character right i i just at this point looking at the ballots that are outstanding i don't think there's any way that blake masters can overcome the deficit but She's significantly less in deficit. Uh, she's got a chance. I don't understand the split ticket, but like that makes that blows my mind. The Carrie Lake Mark Kelly voter. <laughs> I want to talk. I want to have a beer with them. Right? right? Like, are they just not filling it out? Thank God for that. I don't think they're just drinking beer, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what they're drinking, but I'm, I'm willing to have a taste. <laughs> well, we don't yet really know how it all turns out, but. This was uh, a, a good discussion, and uh, hopefully people enjoyed our banter here. And guys, this was fun as always. We'll continue to evaluate the results and be back next week, and hopefully we'll know more. We'll have, we'll have completely different thoughts next week, I'm sure, on the <laughs> We'll all flip and take the other side. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That we would have be to fun. evolve. We're always evolving, Tanner. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Moving all forward. Right. We call. Yeah, right. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.